captain has turned on the seatbelt light. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelts. Thank you. 20 memorable journeys, 20 unforgettable matches, two very different journalists. Where do their paths intersect? In the cricket press box. Welcome to Press Box 2020 with Bharat Sundaresan and Anand Vasu. On behalf of the flight crew, thank you for flying with us and have a pleasant stay. Hello and welcome to the second edition of the Press Box 2020 podcast. And this time it's me, Anand Vasu, who's your first voice. I'll be hosting the show because it'll be mostly about uh, the West Indies team and we have our West Indies expert as my co-host Bharat Sundaresan. Uh, the match we're going back to is the final of the World T20 in Calcutta in 2016. Um, West Indies versus England. We were both there. It was a hot, steamy April night as uh, I recall it. It was West Indies' second win in the World T20 and a very, very big deal for the team at the time. England looked like they had the match and the tournament in the bag and they too uh, desperately in search of ICC silverware at the time. Um, so it was a tournament where uh, two neutral teams playing in India in the most iconic ground perhaps that the world has. So moving on from the quiet and calm of the Adelaide Oval where we uh, went through India versus Australia in the first episode of this podcast. Set the scene for us. What was it like leading up into the final? It was rather interesting uh, on a personal front because I wasn't even supposed to be there. Uh, my colleague Sriram Bira was like nominated to cover the final for the Indian Express who I used to write for back then. And it all turned in a matter of minutes really the semi-final was uh, West Indies versus India which was a big deal at that point because it was a packed Wankade stadium and I I remember I had a f- I have a f- very good friend Peter Matthews who's West Indies' number one fan and he um, had what 15 tickets with him and he just gave it to me only for me to realize later that <laughs> even the police commissioner and some high-level ministers in Bombay <laughs> desperately trying to get into the Wankhede Stadium for that game and couldn't. So, yeah, I was a marked man for a few hours that day. Anyway, and, and you know, West Indies were favorites even though India hosted that tournament. And once, they, once it looked like they were going to win, it was a dramatic match as well, the semi-finals where... Um, Andre Russell took charge of the run chase and as that game came to an end I got a call from my boss Sandeep Duvedi who said that you know West Indies have made it to the final and I want you to be there and I said yeah but finals in two days and he said okay just book your ticket now and uh, this is not going to be funded by the company but by me because I want you to be there Uh, I guess he knew that I would get a couple of exclusive interviews or so but more so because I think he really wanted me to be there. I'd never seen West Indies win much really in my life uh, in person. So that's how my journey began. And yeah, by 8 a.m. the next morning, I was on a flight to Calcutta. And actually, um, I must also add that uh, I got into some uh, hot water with some of our dear Indian uh, colleagues because um, I always carry a West Indian jersey with me for big matches. And... As soon as that semi-final finished and everybody like disappeared into um, uh, to, to uh, like they started moving towards the basement of the Wankhede for the press conference, I quietly took my jersey out and there was another West Indian journalist who you uh, know from Trinidad, Vinod Bamchan, who said like you know take a jersey out, let's take a picture. Unfortunately, <laughs> some of them, including a few senior guys. Had, hadn't really gone down. They were just in the back having a smoke. So they saw me taking a picture <laughs> in, in a West Indian jersey on a day. India had been knocked out of a home World Cup. Yeah, they didn't take too kindly to it. I, I was even called a traitor by some, but, well, I was smiling. And, uh, yeah, and yeah, like I said, the next morning I was in um, Calcutta on Southern Street where I found you. I think we met for breakfast. I can't remember if it was breakfast or not, but I do remember Sarja Street, uh, although I don't particularly care to. I think it was uh, slightly uh, tricky lodgings, but given that we also got, I got there the last minute just there for the final, was covering uh, other parts of the tournament uh, in different places. And 
really I know you are you have a fascination for West Indies cricket so it was a must have been a very big deal for you but to me it was a match that needed to be covered um, not much more and I had to be back in Bangalore very early uh, straight after the final I was flying out only a few hours after the game very early in the morning so it was for me a very much um, kind of a business like final I, there was really nothing invested in me as a cricket fan whether England won or West Indies won wouldn't have made much of a difference to me I did uh, I was looking forward to the game greatly because uh, West Indies had been a team that has had promised so much but had been in decline in tests and one dayers and 2020 cricket really seemed the only realistic chance in which they could put together a team where they could dominate the opposition on uh, a semi-consistent basis and like you said they were favorites in that uh, tournament so it was uh, the, the interest the prime area of interest for me was to see uh, who all from the west indies team would emerge from that um, tournament how they would uh, do in that final and uh, leading up i was looking more at the england team um, guys like joe root josh butler jason roy owen morgan uh you know how they were building up how they were warming up for the final because they england had not won um icc silverware in england had uh, not really been t20 um had not cracked the t20 code and the limited overs code as they have since and become a much more uh, dominant team and there there was a bit of diffidence to england's batting uh, their spin stocks were very very low and with the final being played in india it was definitely west indies all the way and when darren sammy won the toss in the final and uh, i think he had won every single toss in that tournament which is just as well because uh, he didn't really have a lot else to do uh, did he i mean he didn't bat very much he didn't bowl very much um but you know um, the west indies set up well and you know darren sammy well uh, what is it that sammy really brought to that team in terms of captaincy and holding them together Yeah you're so right about Sammy he bowled 3 overs in that uh, or he batted 3 times scored 8 runs bowled 3 overs that's all he did throughout that tournament and won a lot of tosses yeah Sammy's an interesting one when he did become captain for the first time is when they had the like in you know, a player revolt and uh Bangladesh went there in 2009 and he was just instated and he was always known as uh an administration guy a uh, management guy so Uh, I remember in his early days of captaincy he was not the most respected of cricketers even within the dressing room I mean I was privy to conversations between some of the younger guys who in that team who would speak of him rather mockingly when he wasn't around of course uh but I think uh, that 2012 world t20 win kind of changed Sammy's reputation or like just his standing in within that team and I think he started to kind of find himself as a cricketer as well he, in t20 cricket especially he was someone who could come and change the game which he did in that 2012 world t20 and didn't need to really in the 2016 version uh but his uh, it was interesting the way he he built up that team in the lead up to that final he kept calling them uh davids and like you know how the rest of the world were goliaths and i remember having uh, uh, speaking to him about it a few times after press conference saying why are you even seeing this like nobody in their sane mind would not count you guys as favorites to win here pitches are flat boundaries are small you have big guys you have everybody who you need like you know from the bravos and the and the brussels everybody's there in this team so so why would you even say that and he uh, i remember once he told i think it was in bombay he said like or they wanted to prove someone wrong <laughs> like i know and if you look at the team individually each one had that Marlon Samuels who we will come to uh had like you know Shane Warne had said a few things about him earlier that year when West Indies toured Australia Jeff Lawson had claimed that he had links with uh, the underworld in Jamaica uh so he had a point to prove uh the West Indian players had been like had had like contract issues that year leading up into that tournament with their board uh and some of the top players had just come in for that tournament purely and nobody knew and Sammy would go on to say later when we will come to that that he he didn't know when he would uh you would see him again in west indian colors so uh, it was almost his way of creating this us against them scenario and of course the one thing that 
uh, had pissed off a lot of West Indians was Mark Nicholas's article leading into that tournament when he said, yeah, they might have some IPL worth, but they're guys uh, with no brains, which obviously you could compare it with the uh, famous or infamous Grovel statement from Tony Gregg all those years ago. So, and that's one thing I've realized with this West Indian team and most of their players they like putting themselves in that position where it is us against them because it seems to rile them up or at least gets them to play their best form of cricket. And uh, yeah, you spoke about England and the one thing into leading into that final was we knew that either way we would get to see our first ever two-time World T20 champions. And uh, yeah, it, it was the coming of age of England. Uh, and, and, and like, you know, actually speaking, they were the second best team or if not joint best team with West Indies coming into that final. Well, it certainly didn't look like any kind of coming of age when uh, West, when England began their batting. Um, Jason Roy, who, you know, he's ha- likes to go bang, bang, bang at the top of the order. He uh, plants his foot and launches big and he seems to kind of have that attitude that I p- this is the way I play and I will... Uh, take it on no matter what. It looks really, really good when it comes off. But when it doesn't, like it didn't on that day. Uh, and then uh, Alex Hale's also getting out cheaply. But uh, eight for two, it didn't look like um, England were going to get very far. And then Joe Root, who's not the best uh, T20 player. He's not the kind of player who you would automatically pencil into a team because he doesn't seem to have the big shots. He doesn't seem to have one standout um feature to his batting excellent all-round batsman one of the best in the world at the moment you keep talking about you know Virat Kohli Joe Root Kane Williamson Steve Smith in the same breath but when it comes to 2020 cricket Root is hardly the kind of player you know who's going to get the big bucks either at an IPL auction or is is, is the kind of player who you back to turn games on their head and yet the situation was uh, kind of made for him because it allowed him to play his game and allowed him to build an innings of sorts and um, as he was doing that it didn't look like England were going to get very far. Yeah it didn't and uh, it was the second time England were playing a World Cup final on that ground and everyone remembers what happened in 1987 with uh, Mike Gadding and the reverse sweep and it was such a different and it's funny with English cricket right that the way they played one day cricket in 87 was how they continued playing white ball cricket till maybe 2015 or just a few months before they came to India for that tournament. And um, when they started your ride, it looked like they'd gone back to 1987, just in terms of their approach. Uh, like you said, perfectly set up for someone like Joe Root. It, it was a flat pitch, but I think in in Samuel Badri, uh, West Indies had the perfect spinner to like make the most of it. And if you remember, there was no Sunil Narayan. He lost his father at the start of the tournament and he'd gone back. So, Suleiman Ben was the second spinner. And uh, uh, not like he's not a mystery spinner. Nothing mysterious about Suleiman Ben. He's just tall, left arm, like comes wide of the crease and just like darts it in. So, uh, but Samuel Badri gave West Indies a perfect start. The kind of start he you become, become accustomed to with him in T20 cricket. Uh, and yeah, it looked like especially the way West Indies were chasing down totals, uh, you assumed England would need at least something in the range of 180 even to challenge them. And they had been crushed by West Indies in in their league encounter in Bombay. So, uh, yeah, at that point, the only thing that surprised me though, Anand, was the fact that there was at least three sections of the crowd who were supporting England. And... I looked at it very. I thought West Indies would be everybody's favorite, and that's when a colleague of mine, uh, who is from Calcutta, gave me a very famous line, which I haven't forgotten. He said that no, no, you shouldn't be surprised because the only Anglo-Saxons left in the world <laughs> are in Calcutta. So, yeah, whether you believe it or not, <laughs> it's something that stuck with me, and I actually asked him to write a piece just based around that, which I did, uh, which I think he did. Uh, but yeah, apart from that, it just looked like even though Joe Root and Butler did have a partnership in between, it looked like England were not going to like put up a score that would challenge West Indies. And even as that partnership was going, you know, it looked like 170 would be on the cards. Uh, just as they were kind of kicking on, West Indies pulled it back. I think it was Bravo who picked up a couple of wickets and then Brathwaite again towards the end and with the with a lot of the England batting gone from 
pushing towards 170 at one stage it looked like they may not ba- even bat out uh, their 20 overs and then just a little bit of um, david willie at the end and they got to 155 and 155 at the break it looked completely like west indies all the way yeah I- I remember interviewing Carlos Brathwaite the morning after the game and he actually said uh, while he was leaving the ground with his girlfriend, he'd said that, you know, I'm here as an all-rounder and I've not really lit the tournament up, but I just have one wicket coming into this final. So I can't be happy with just one wicket. And he was the one who dismissed both Butler and Root. He broke that partnership to start with and then got rid of Root. So even though we will come to what he did later in the night with the bat, he actually brought the game back in a way or like uh, put West Indies again in front with the ball as well. So he turned it around and again, yeah, at the break, you just thought this is West Indies' game all along. And it, and it had been that kind of year. They'd won the Under-19 World Cup and nobody expected them to. Uh, they had won the... The women had won their World Cup just a few hours prior to that at the Eden Gardens. Uh, it it wasn't as though the West Indies beginning suge- uh, you know suggested any confidence because uh, England again we were talking about the lack of spin options and Joe Root opening the bowling he'd hardly bowled um, in any competitive cricket uh, before this and uh, but you know West Indies playing uh, somewhat true to form one fielder out in the deep and both uh, Johnson Charles and Chris Gale managed to find him. And uh, two for five became then three for 11 when Lendl Simmons was out. And uh, Marlon Samuels. <laughs> yeah, like someday we can do a, an entire episode on just what, how Anand Vasu sees Marlon Samuels, the cricketer and the person. But uh, that might be one for a later day. But yeah, I mean... Joe Root was a was a shock move and it also kind of told you the kind of captain Owen Morgan would become. Kind of not unpredictable, but someone who was ready to take chances. And uh, maybe English cricket needed an Irishman to come and change the way they thought. Like, you know, it, I, I would always use one line from a Pink Floyd song, like, you know, uh, hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. And that's exactly how they played white ball cricket uh, or they had historically. But here they... Like, you know, who would have thought Joe Root would be the one to, like, you know, get rid of Chris Gale? Because the game was set up for Chris Gale. It looked like if he hung around for eight or nine overs, the way he was batting in that tournament, yeah, the game game over. So, I don't think even the West Indies expected Joe Root. And I remember asking Otis Gibson, who was then the England bowling coach the next morning about the Joe Root move or the next afternoon. And he said that um, it wasn't planned. In the dressing room, it was just a, a, like a call that Morgan took on the field. And this is the second over of the, of the run chase. So, yeah, it, it turned out wonderfully for England. I remember the celebration. And that's when I heard like the three sections of the English, the Anglo-Saxon supporters, if I may call them, um, explode when Gale got out. And um, uh, Joe Root running towards Ben Stokes. Yeah, those images are very vivid in my head. And at that point... Yeah, you did think that with the power hitters gone, and especially Lendl Simmons is a very underrated T20 batsman. He's someone who uh, scores quickly, but also we've seen him do it in the IPL for Mumbai. He can he, he plays a very Rohit Sharma-like role. He can he can guide an innings really well. So losing him as well, and to then have my dear friend Marlon Samuels there all by himself, as a West Indian fan, was very very concerning. And Samuels um, seemed to be taking on the root role. I mean, he had to because there was a bit of uh, rebuilding to do in the innings. And he wasn't really at his fluent best. I remember him hitting down the ground quite well. Uh, He was confident and strong there. But apart from that, it was not as though he was taking the game away. The target was only 156. uh, So he knew that, you know, he didn't really have to explode. Uh, Keeping in touch, perhaps, with the score... Uh, but it wasn't as though you know he would, the West Indies were in complete control of the game. I remember with the la- with five overs left to go, there was still 52 needed, and Samuels at that time was uh, just about run a ball. He was clo- uh, about 47, 50 at the time, and he had Brathwaite at the crease. Uh, again, a lot of the batting was still behind them. Brathwaite hadn't done much in the tournament before that, um, so it was. 
stacked quite well in England's favour and then uh, Chris Jordan bowled a good over, keeping it very, very tight, leaving West Indies, of course, with 19 runs to win in that final over. Yeah, and uh, Marlon Samuels, you're right, and it also said a lot about the pitch. It wasn't one where the ball was really coming on all the time and Marlon, as we know, is a great timer of the ball, very stylish batsman, uh, likes the ball coming on, uses the pace of the ball really well and... Uh, and he, like I said earlier, he had a point to prove. And I remember asking him for uh, uh, an interview before the semi-final in Bombay. And he just looked at me in his customary fashion and he said, I'm me, silent killer. And uh, so he refused to give me the interview or he turned it down anyway. And uh, he said, no, no, I'll do my talking with the bat. And th there, you could see there was a lot going on in his head. And uh, I think the target helped him, though. It was in his range. I think if... West Indies were chasing somewhere, if it was like close to 190 or 200, even 180, and they were 11 for three. With no support from the other end, Marlon would have struggled. But I think it just helped that it was a very, it was under eight and over. So the under eight never really climbed too far out of reach till the very end, of course. Um, and Dwayne Bravo played a useful hand as well, he, like more than run a ball, but. Uh, he was, oh sorry, less than run a ball, but I think that partnership kind of set it up and Bravo also is not the most explosive of batsmen. So uh, they set it up nicely f with the expectation that Russell and Sammy would come and finish it off like they had in, uh, Russell had in the semi-final. But once David Willey knocked those two out and I thought he had a great day, David Willey, uh, very underrated white ball performer for England, uh, unfortunate to miss out in the 2019 World Cup squad. So once that happened, yeah, you all again looked at because now you were just left with uh, Ramdeen, Badri, and Ben, none of whom and Phil Simmons would go on to say that his expectation was just Brathwaite being on strike for that last over. Even if, even like though at one point they needed 31, I remember, of 13 balls, and Carlos Brathwaite would play a ramp shot, uh, which would go over the keeper for four. And later on, uh, he, he said that it was a shot he would practice in the nets and they would everybody would make fun of him. They would be like, why are you trying the ramp shot? Uh, but at that point, it came in handy. And, uh, you know, he looked at the dressing room and it was almost like, look, this is what I was planning it for. So I think that boundary took some pressure off. But again, yeah, going into that last over, I think West Indies were lucky that Brathwaite was on strike, whether it was planned that way or not. Uh or if not, uh, for all my love for Marlon, Marlon Samuels, I don't think he could have pulled it off in the last two, if he was on strike. And those uh, four sixes now, of course, are legendary and made especially memorable by Ian Bishop's <laughs> commentary during the time. Do you want to have a go at doing some of that? Just get to remember the name. <laughs> but like, it's, it's interesting. It was interesting picking Brathwaite's brain... Or like ahead about what was going through it, like you know, at that point, apparently Marlon just asked him, uh, or walked up to him at the end of that over and said, "Get back to ball, and we we are running." But in Brathwaite's head, he said, "I'm just going to swing for the hills." Like he's a big guy, and he made his Test debut earlier that year in Australia and hit some big sixes. He made 50 odd, but uh, there were a couple of sixes at I think at the SCG that really stood out. So you knew he could he could hit hit it long, uh, and I think. Owen Morgan also missed a trick by not giving Adil Rashid an extra over and going to Ben Stokes, who wasn't, who's never been the best death bowler for the England ever or, or even the IPL. So I think he took a huge gamble there as well. We, we uh, like, you know, uh, praised him for bringing Joe Root on earlier on, but like, I think he missed the trick there. So they England also kind of played into their hands. Maybe they thought it was game over and all Ben Stokes needed to do was nail a couple of Yorkers maybe and uh, uh, the, ga the game was over. But then you could see that the pressure was suddenly on Ben Stokes and not Carlos Brathwaite. And uh, yeah, it all um, eventuated in remember the name. And uh, yeah, the rest is it. Unfortunately, for two years after that, Carlos Brathwaite was known more for <laughs> what Ian Bishop had said about him than... Uh, his performances because they really dipped and it wasn't till last year's World Cup when he made uh, that famous 100 against New Zealand and couldn't get West Indies over and when again Ian Bishop was in the commentary box and Carlos Brathwaite can you believe it and uh, yeah all that was happening again but yeah no it, it was it was an interesting interesting night but I think 
England did not help their own cause with some decisions and Ben Stokes, of course, uh, lost the plot after that first six and uh, and I think you, you remember he bowled a couple of full tosses there and by then, by the second six, I think everybody knew that this game was over. Well, 85 not out of 66 balls was Marlon Samuels. Brathwaite, 34 from only tw- uh, 10 balls, including, you know, those three sixes in a row with 19 needed in the final over. I mean, the fourth one was a bit of a bonus and that the game was yeah. as good as one by then. And even before that, like you said, with the ball, three for 23, including the two big wickets at the end, were you a bit surprised that it was Samuels was man of the match and not Brathwaite? It seemed to a lot of us like Brathwaite was the one who had actually made the big difference in the game. He made the difference in the bowling. And even for all that Samuels did, stabilizing the innings and then pushing towards the end, uh, 19 of the last over was still a pretty stiff ask. And um, it needed someone like Brathway to do it. So to many of us, there, there was a bit of surprise that it was Samuels who was man of the match and not Brathway. Yeah, I was surprised as well. Uh, maybe the, the award for Carlos Brathwaite came via Ian Bishop, I guess, that the fact that he his commentary almost etched Carlos Brathwaite's name in everybody's memory, or so we thought at that point, uh, Maybe they thought like they should just go with Marlon because he had kind of held his own at eleven for three and seen it, like seen them through without giving it away. But yeah, I mean, honestly, it should have been Carlos Brathwaite who got the man of the match, despite Marlon's eighty-six. And uh, he was man of the match when um, West Indies won their first World T20 in two thousand twelve on a very tricky pitch where again he'd made uh, he top scored for them. But you know how it goes in cricket, often. Guys who top score in finals end up with uh, man of the match trophies, and I think uh, it, it was just a drama around Carlos Brathwaite's four sixes, which I think he deserved that man of the match for. Because yeah, without uh, Marlon might have made a hundred, but West Indies could have still lost without Carlos Brathwaite being on strike. Forget about the four sixes; the fact that he was on strike to start with, I think, is what like even pushed West Indies um, over the line. You've given us a really interesting perspective into you know West Indies kind of players pumping themselves up by making it themselves against the rest of the world, having a point to prove, having an axe to grind, and you mentioned also that uh, you know Marlon Samuels didn't want to do an interview before the um, semi-finals, and then saying that he would let his bat do the talking. It was a completely different story after the final, though. You know, once the uh, deal was done. Because Samuels was not uh, scheduled to do a press conference. Um, there were the two captains who were going to do their bits. And uh, Samuels just showed up anyway at the press conference room uh, and you know, waiting for the England press conference uh, to finish. And once it was done, I'm sure everyone has seen that picture now. Or we'll try and post a link of it at the end of this anyway, where he still had his pads on and his spikes and everything, and he plonked his uh, feet on the table <laughs> Uh, the ICC media manager was you know, kind of trying to get him to put his feet back down and sit and face the cameras. Uh, but Marlon, of course, would have none of that. And uh, at first, the media manager thought he was joking. But, well, I don't think uh, Samuels was in any mood to joke at the time. Uh, he did take on Shane Warren once more. Uh, he had a dig at um, Ben Stokes. Um, there was a lot of anger in uh, Samuels. And what did you make of that response? Uh, for someone who had just won, someone who'd won the man of the match, you'd have thought uh, that was that would be a bit of a happy moment for him. But he seemed even grumpier then than at the start of the game. Marlon Samuels is, well, it, it's an understatement to say he's an interesting character. He, he I've been fortunate enough to know him quite well for quite a while, nearly 10 years now. And um, he, yeah, I mean, he his approach to life, it's its all, it's, it's very different to <laughs> like, I don't know what you would call normal, I guess. And uh, I, I, funnily enough, by the time the game got over and uh, the celebrations had begun, so I'd stayed back in the press box watching like the West Indies celebrate. And then walked towards the press conference room and 
uh, Owen Morgan's press conference had already started. And so I was waiting in that little room outside when Marlon, the door just burst open and Marlon walked in with his shirt on. If you remember, everybody had taken their shirts off. Um, and I, I don't, he, he looked at me, I looked at him and I was like, what are you doing here? Because the media manager, Philip Spooner, wasn't around him. So I just asked him, what are you doing here? And he asked me what's going on inside. I said, well, the English press conference is getting over. He's like, okay, I have something to say. And he just plonked himself on a, on a couch there. And they're like, the catering staff and some other people around there, they didn't know what to do either. And I just stood around having a little chat with him. He seemed pretty calm. He's almost... So I, d I did not know at that point, like Philip Spooner would later say, he, they were all looking for Marlon in the dressing room and he just escaped. And I didn't know. I don't even know how he knew where the press conference room was. But... Um, but when I spoke, when I was, like it was maybe like two or three minutes, when we spoke to each other, he seemed very calm. He seemed very happy that he had won. And but in three minutes, I remember like when the door opened and Owen Morgan walked out. I yeah, it, they didn't say much to each other, but there was like a nod of, I don't know, like maybe just acknowledgement that you know of some sort. And then he walks in, and okay, this is where we might. Uh, th this could lead to a debate, which is always healthy between us. But I think I was there, like very close to the table, and uh, a he was he still had his pads on, and it was a cramped kind of space. So he tried he tried fit fitting his legs in, but because I was very close to him on the side, and he couldn't. So I think he just put his um, feet on the on the table which again was not very professional but I remember also him telling pointing at like just looking at me and saying you don't like you know he people were asked to move so that his feet could fit and he like you me friend you just stand there and I was like uh oh so <laughs> this is not gonna go so it was a complete like change in his attitude once he walked into that room as compared to how he was outside um, and but that's just Marlon like he, in years since he's he does that a lot on Instagram live and yeah, he's just like I said, a different personality, and he obviously had lots, uh, lots going on in his head. He's not, and he would be the first one to admit it. Like he doesn't spend too much time with his teammates. Uh, he prefers to be by himself, like doing his own bit. But on the field, like he might have never, he might not get along with a Bravo or a Gale. But when the game is on. He is rather quite, or he is quite a professional, like we've seen, or like I have seen, I guess. <laughs> like, you know, even in that final, the way he batted with Bravo, um, despite their differences, I think he's, uh, that's just Marlon. And um, yeah, I mean, the Shane Warne stuff had been going on for a while. And I remember he said, uh, he even dedicated his award to, to Shane Warne. They have a saying in um, Jamaica, which uh, they call some people there, He's uh, cooler than coolness mother. And I think that's what Marlon was trying to be that day. But like you said, it didn't come across too too well. And I'm, I'm sure there were a lot of people in that room, I remember, who did not like the way he con like he just even spoke. Uh, and it was mo more, more about him talking than a press conference. I also like this uh, wonderful uh, defense that you've <laughs> mounted and this... Uh, still continuing to push the fiction that he had his uh, feet on the table because um, his pads couldn't uh, get under the table. Uh, I have done a few press conferences in my 21 years. I have never seen any player put their feet on the table. I have seen players come to press conferences with their pads on. And also, I'm pretty sure that Samuels could have taken his pads off given that you know players who came before him had taken their pads off even then it takes a couple of minutes to take pads off these days at best I it's interesting that uh, it's even being put forward as a theory that the pads were the reason because the media manager did ask him that is on audio we have it of saying can you please put your feet down and Samuel saying no and the media manager asking him a second time you know, this is a press conference. Can you please put your feet down? And he said no. And then the media manager gave up. So I think it, it's kind of it's cute that you're trying to push this theory that it had something to do with the pads. It didn't. It was um, he he was angry for whatever reason. It was his way of showing it, which I, that's his right, I suppose. But 
you know, if you look back at that, I think this is one of the traps that, you know, some of these players fall into because Samuels, for all his, he's played 300 games for the West Indies across formats. He's, you know, he averages 32 at best in any format in of the three. There was a time when he was thought of as someone who could be a, you know, serious player in world cricket, uh, that he could help the West Indies in some way he clearly has the skill. So what, what is it that uh, is missing, do you think? Is, it, is he just unwilling to learn? Is he just not good enough? Is he incapable of learning? Um, okay, I don't want this to sound like a defense of Marlon Samuels. But, and because it is not, I think over time it's just a case of uh, he's never had the right captain or the la- right like right guide in that dressing room to kind of like you know and before long he became a senior player himself because uh yeah like you said he burst onto the scene as a 19 year old scored some runs in australia people looked at him as a major star he had his moments on and off in india in 2002 and then um, like yeah but he was never really consistent and then i think the whole two year suspension or allegations of match fixing really really turned him like uh, because I've spoken to him obviously I didn't know him at that point but I've spoken to people who have known him throughout this period and that really changed him as a person I think he started drifting away from just wanting to be a successful cricketer which obviously trains very hard he's one of the fittest guys in the Caribbean even now he's nearly 40 Uh, but like I remember visiting his house in 2011 He, he lived with just a lot of dogs and puppies and he he told me that uh, I don't trust humans anymore like I just like trust these dogs they're even and um, yeah and since he's obviously moved to a much bigger house and I think it's just his personality people have never really maybe it's he's to blame as well he's never given people an opportunity to really understand his personality but he's never um, never really been understood too well and I think that has affected his cricket a lot. So he's always had that within even the dressing room, he's had that whole me against them uh, attitude to literally every game he's played. Surely over 300 games, if that's not working for you, you would do something to change it. Or is that's that's why I was asking, is he unwilling to change, incapable of change, or just not good enough? I mean, you've said it's... A captain, he didn't have the right captain. He doesn't trust humans. He was suspended. Well, all these things are facts, but what they have to do with his uh, underachievement as a cricketer is what I don't get. Um, yeah, I think all those things are true. I mean, he is unwill- unwilling to change his attitude towards life itself and I think definitely towards cricket. Um he does feel very wronged by people around him. He feels he's never got um, his due. Um, like, you know, he always com- like compares himself with... He, he, he played 500 games rather than 300. <laughs> how, how does playing 300 international matches count as not getting your due? Yeah, I mean, you're right in a way, but there, there are 300 international matches over almost, uh, a 20-year career almost. So... Um, I guess it's just a case of... It also tells you a lot about the cricket culture in the Caribbean, though. Where, uh, yeah, I mean, especially when you come from Jamaica, you you don't have the greatest of leadership in, in, the, in cricketing circles in Jamaica, especially in the last 10, 15 years or so. Uh, so what happens is you see a lot of these guys come into the system and uh, uh, they if... It doesn't come from within, like they don't have the capability to change and to like uh, upgrade themselves as cricketers and as people, it doesn't happen. So then it leads to a lot of resentment and a lot of anger, which we've seen a lot from Marlon, people who know him well, people who don't know him well. Uh, There is a lot of uh, heat he has with a lot of people in within that team, forget about everyone elsewhere, like so... Uh, yeah, it comes from a place of, yeah, n- not like in his head, he's he's a victim of, uh, and I guess it's once you are in that kind of mind space, 
I don't know. It's difficult to get out of it. And but that's West Indian cricket for you, or one of the main reasons why it has struggled is there is no system which kind of like you know holds you up and helps you like you know work your way out of these kind of holes that you dig your yourselves in. moving on from marlon samuels now uh there was also the other big talking point around the win apart from west indies cricket was the whole uh, champions song and their celebration that uh, kind of dogged the whole of the first inning so it moved i thought from being celebration and spontaneous to a kind of send off to every batsman that got dismissed because every single wicket that fell there was they were almost together as a group uh i don't remember who it was possibly joe root uh, based on you know after he got out where the cricketers were here he had to walk past nearly the entire team and they were all in this dance and uh, i find uh, send offs to batsmen particularly distasteful and uh, bordering on cowardly really because batsmen can't respond at the time if some if a bowler or a fielder sledges a batsman while he's at the crease he at least has a chance to reply but once he's dismissed there's really nothing he can do um what did you see that as did you see it as um celebration or did you see it as send off i certainly thought it was a send off and i thought it was in very poor taste yeah and i remember you writing a very strong piece about that and uh, uh and yeah i mean it, it was a fair opinion yeah i think that whole champion song and the way it, it also tells you a lot about the stereotype that like cricket itself has put on western like cricketers from the caribbean and the stereotype that they a lot of them seem to have realized that is a, is a good one to play up to because it kind of uh like you know it it, it kind of enhances uh, their profile i mean obviously at the end of the day i like you know your t20 deals and contracts are going to come more based on how many sixes you hit and how many wickets you take and how many catches you take but uh it, it, like Dwayne Bravo in particular now, he since like you know he rec- he releases a song for every tournament he plays in at least the high profile tournament and for him it was just promotion of that song it was uh, it's a song which celebrates uh every famous black athlete or like a few famous black uh, like people like ar- around the world so uh that's what the song is all about it it's it's not the uh it it wasn't very melodious so it wasn't there's was nothing very <laughs> musically aesthetic about it but uh i think for him it was just promotion of his song and it helped that everyone in that team except marlon bought into that whole concept and um, yeah it 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 was a little boorish at times like when it went beyond like just like them having fun to like them almost being like like but that but that's the problem right like the that whole campaign was built around how this whole the how the world has really like pushed us into a corner whereas in reality except the mark nicholas piece their fight was just with their board i mean uh, which yeah you're absolutely right i also found it a little jarring just the way they spoke about how everyone was against them the whole of india like except the three sections at the hidden gardens was like you know even though they defeated india in the semi final wanted west indies to win they backed them they've always got a lot of love in india and it was strange for them to then bring up everyone who had said even something to an ex- like little negative about them and to like talk it up. because yeah like i said their issue was with the board like darren sammy said right after they won the world cup the first thing he said was like you know he slammed the board which was interesting considering he was he always had a reputation of being a board guy a management guy so uh yeah like yeah i i would i didn't go as far as you did in terms of uh dissing or not dissing but like you know questioning the whole motive behind the whole champion uh send offs that like you know it was a send off like, i agree with you like it was a send off it didn't look like they were celebrating anything because you saw the angst at the end of it like marlon you said he i remember him he was charging towards the english dressing room five of them had to literally um hold him back and like yeah and it was the the irony was it all came about at a time when they had the coolest coach ever like phil simmons who never shows much emotions and i remember interviewing him and carlos brathwaite outside the victoria memorial the next morning 
and i asked him like were you also dancing around he like nah i wasn't doing any of that when carlos hit the second six i knew we were winning this and i was just cool calm and collected and like yeah but whatever the angst and everything that came out it was just boiling under the surface so it just came out like so but i think though they spoke about mark nicholas and shane warne and so many other people their actual angst the point they really wanted to prove was to their own cricket board to say that look like you know you didn't even give us our own uniforms our manager had to sort it out like at the last minute fly in from dubai to calcutta and sort it out and but we have still won a world cup well we'll leave you with the final word on west indies and that tournament for the moment but you wanted to talk about calcutta and eden gardens a little earlier and since we're fast running out of time i think we should get there um as a city uh, i find calcutta quite challenging um at times i've i've lived in bombay in madras in delhi and in bangalore i've never actually lived in calcutta so i don't have a familiarity with that with the city in that sense uh, i do um my my calcutta is split between eden gardens a uh, couple of hotels very close by and the airport there's really not much else i've seen of calcutta which is a pity because uh, from everything my friends tell me and from everything uh people who live there say there is uh so much to explore and so much to do i haven't had the chance i hopefully will do one one day i'll just say that uh an event like the world t20 wasn't the greatest um, you know for me to experience eden gardens i suppose that's because my first experience of eden gardens was the india australia test of 2001 and i think a test match is at eden gardens is a lot more fun because uh, that ground is all about the crowd it's not really about you know it's it's not one of the better looking stadiums in the world it is one of the most inconvenient stadiums in the world if you're a cricket reporter uh there might be a, a different story in the fans in the stands for the fans um so on its own the stadium is is not is not a particularly nice one in my opinion um it's also in terms of facilities it used to be very very difficult it's improved a little now um but it's the stands the stands the people in the stands the crowd that has a completely uh, different life to it when the eden gardens is packed out um and in a test match where there is time for quiet periods there is time for uh, slow action and then the crowd really comes to life then the crowd really becomes a part of the game i think and seeing um, you know india in that test match uh, harbhajan singh's hat trick lakshman's 281 dravid's 180 it, the game itself had everything but the manner in which the crowd almost willed india to victory for me Uh, Eden Gardens will always be special because of the crowd, not really uh, because of much else. Um, what was, what are your Eden Gardens impressions? <laughs> uh, that was the second time I was going to the Eden Gardens. The previous occasion was in 2011 when India played West Indies in a Test match, which finished in, I think, three days or so. It was a classic Test West Indian Test match in India of this era. So yeah it wasn't the biggest crowd but like yeah the inconvenience of the press box for sure I experienced when you're so far up it um it almost feels like you're watching the game from the terrace of a nearby building actually not a nearby building a building a few uh, a few yards away uh, so it it's not like yeah it's not the greatest view either i mean you it was a great view to capture all of all four of those sixes from Carlos Brathwaite but when you are covering a test match i'm sure like a test match as good as the 2281 lakshman one i can't compare it with <laughs> the one i saw in 2011 but um yeah it it, it it's for me personally it was slightly underwhelming because i had grown up obviously uh hearing about eden gardens and the crowd and like you know the 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 whole feeling of it being a cauldron like you know once guys came in and yeah maybe uh my visits to the eden gardens have been after the whole renovation for the 2011 world cup where i think the number of people who are allowed inside with bucket seats has reduced so it's obviously not the same atmosphere or environment that i grew up listening to you obviously been there and experienced it um so it it i think the two visits have been rather underwhelming of course i was over the moon with west indies winning and all that but yeah and calcutta as a city itself i've got to know it a little better thanks to 
uh, my in-laws staying there and also being bengali uh, like my wife of course and uh, yeah it's it, for me it's all about food cheap amazing meat and fish and uh, but having said that <laughs> and we are the we are the kind of journalists who don't complain about food in the press box 11 if lunch is served at 11 we are there at 10:55 kind of uh, and we will talk about it one day for sure about our uh, w- the many times we've kind of like t- taken a wager on what we would be served for lunch and you get it right more often than i do but um, yeah but even uh, having said that the only place in all of calcutta where i've never been comfortable with the food is at the eden gardens <laughs> i think it's just the the smell of mustard oil that you get at like at 9 in the morning when you walk in <laughs> it kind of puts you off but otherwise uh, i really do like calcutta as a city there's a lot it has a lot to offer in terms of it in a way it's a, though not as pretty as adelaide it is like adelaide in terms of everything stays old and they like to keep it uh the way it is maybe i have to say all this because like i said earlier i have um, vested interest in the city but um, yeah for me it's the food and um, well the cricket crowd like i said at least i got a new experience i i found out that at least in some part of india uh, there are people who support england which uh, kind of surprised me and uh, to cap off like the experience of eden gardens and like you know this long winding answer which uh, our listeners will get used to is i remember seeing seeing ben stokes the next morning at the team hotel like uh, or the next afternoon and it was a sight i would i would never forget he was sitting in one corner of the hotel uh, the, in the hotel cafe where there were a lot of plants with his partner and uh, uh, i won't forget the moment when carlos brathwaite like you know looking cool in his white t-shirt i think i think he was just by himself not his girlfriend he walked past that table and they just had this kind of he just they, they just nodded at each other you could see ben stokes wasn't himself obviously he, he they didn't you, you you have to be like he's human after all so he you could see it had affected him but it was good to see carlos brathwaite just share a couple of words with him like you know uh, exchange a couple of like pleasantries with him before walking past and uh, yeah i think that should lead us beautifully into our next episode indeed on that happy note uh, we move from two cities with uh, vested interests for bharat sundaresh and my co-host to a city where hopefully there are none <laughs> we will be going to lords uh, for the third episode of press box 2020 where we'll be looking at the most recent world cup final the 50 over world cup final which uh, some people say england won some people say was tied some people say new zealand did not lose Uh, any which way we'll catch you again on pressbox 2020 with the third episode till then thank you very much for listening you can find us on spotify itunes and wherever else you get your podcast from hit download subscribe and don't forget to give us a five star rating if you think we've earned it also follow us on twitter and instagram at pressbox 2020 that's pressbox 2020